you know, Wednesday was uh, Ash Wednesday, and uh, we are beginning a Lenten season uh, before Easter. And each Sunday, what I propose to do is to um, read to you a passage of Scripture that that traces the pass the the journey of Jesus to the cross and then to the resurrection. And if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter twenty six. Um, we will just have a short meditation on that. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. We'll look at Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm reading from the ESV. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, which uh, roughly means the wine press. And it's this place that he was, he was pressed. And the Old Testament had many prophetic uh, 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 references to the wine press. Isaiah chapter 63 and different places. The wine press was where there would be a crushing. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this pass cup from this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep. Take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. What we understand here is that in this time of Gethsemane, Jesus in the Spirit prayed and encountered every power of the devil that we would ever encounter, every power of the enemy that was at that moment targeting him, pressing upon him. And all that he needed to do was to say, okay, I'll let this cup go. I'm not going to take it. And the enemy, I cannot imagine the infinite, almost infinite, actually not infinite, but almost infinite amount of firepower that the devil had to attack him on every area. And he defeated the enemy at Gethsemane. It is this defeat at at Gethsemane that caused him to be able to enter in. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, he actually, uh, for the joy that set him before him, despised the shame. Despised the shame. It is not just on the cross that he defeated the devil, but here itself, in prayer. And it is almost as if we can imagine the spiritual battle in which everything is pressing upon him. In this battle, 
Okay? It was different from the battle on the cross. The battle here was upon Jesus' will. Jesus had a self-life, but not a sin life. Jesus had no sin in him. There was no sin in him. But there was self in him. That means Jesus was human. He was not an automaton either. He did not come as a pure robot. He came with a self-life. But he overcame the devil's temptation to subvert the self-life and to make the self-life something that would be only about himself. And it is in this place where tremendous victory. On the cross, he faced the consequences of that decision. And sometimes what happens is this, in our own lives, we experience the press of the enemy in which the target of the devil is our self-life. Yeah, our self-life. And the other enemy wants to do is to subvert the self-life because that's where all the energy is, all the power is, so that it can be subverted for his purposes. Yeah. He wants to actually gut the self, take out everything that's there, that's precious, that's made in the image of God, and, 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 and infuse his own demonic character into it. That's why people can be demon-possessed. Yeah? And so I want to invite you to just join me, join together in giving thanks to the victory that God has given to us and then to give ourselves to Him. Amen? Lord, we welcome your goodness. We cannot imagine the agony that you took upon yourself and on our behalf. You face every temptation, every attack of the enemy, every fear, every angst, every dread, every darkness upon yourself. So that whatever darkness we face would have been a defeated one already. And so we welcome you. We welcome you. That as you bore the crushing, there will be no crushing of our soul that has not already been born by you and defeated by you. We thank you for the blessed hope that no matter how crushing our circumstances are, they will never destroy us. And so like Paul, we say we are crushed but never destroyed. Thank you for that. We welcome you and give our wills to you again. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to uh, share with you something that uh, is sort of in time for this period of Easter. Between now and Easter, during this period of Lent, I believe the Lord is preparing us and he's preparing us for something tremendous. Uh, Easter, we will have an, uh, du during this period of Easter, we will have gone through the Lenten period, a period of preparation of our hearts, our soul, 
to experience the resurrection life of Jesus more and more. Now, he has resurrected already. We, don't, we can't do anything to resurrect him. He's already, he's fine. But what we can do is to prepare our hearts so that that resurrection of life of Christ can become ours as well in an experiential way. It's already ours. He's given it to us because the Holy Spirit is the resurrecting spirit, right? He's already in us. But there are times in which because of our flesh, because of our self-life, we can sometimes be subverted by things external, by things demonic, things of our own flesh, our own arrogance, our own self-will, so, so, that, so that in spite of the fact that we have all the power of God in the person of the Holy Spirit in us, we don't manifest it. We live as if we are paupers or we are beggars when actually we are filled with the riches and the treasures of God, right? Resurrection Sunday in, on East, at Easter, roughly 40 days from now, will, is the celebration of the reality of the fact that the life that Jesus lived on earth can be lived by us on earth is the celebration of the fact that the things that Jesus could do, we can do as well. Right? Now, Lent is so that we can prepare ourselves for that so that we can be more present and aware and more cons consonant with this truth. So, Lent is a period in which we prepare our hearts and we allow God to search our hearts so that if there's anything that's in us, that's blocking the native power of God in us, God can reveal it and set us free from that. Amen? So Lenten, Lent, the Lent period is not meant to make us feel sad or make us feel bad for all the things that we've, bad, we've, we've, we've not done. But the Lent period is, to for help, is for us to realize the power of God and the life of God that is in us. Amen? We, 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 we are sorry for our sins and for the ways in which we have gone away from God, but that does not mean that we mope. Yeah. So I want to put it to you that actually this period is a very precious period. I remember two years ago, we had, it was during Lent, that God spoke to us to get ready for something extraordinary that He was going to do. We did not know that COVID lockdown and all that would start. start. But we began to, to talk about Lenten, the Lent and the things that we are learning from Lent or the disciplines that are happening in us becoming, what if it was a permanent thing and we don't just do it for this few days? What if Lent was not just a matter of giving up our lattes or macchiatos, but if Lent was something in which we ask God to do a permanent work in our lives. What if Lent is something in which we live differently, not just for the 40 days, but we begin to live differently for the rest of our lives and beginning in Lent? We did not know that when we started daily prayer during that period, we would still carry on one year, uh, two years later. But for, for, for the life of our, our church, this is such an important part of our life now together. We are not the same anymore. We're not the same anymore. Yeah? And so I believe that it is possible for us in these 40 days or so 
to experience life-changing, permanent life-changing things that take place in our life that will cause us to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So today's message is the beginning of a series in which we're going to ask that question, how does that happen? Yeah, for us as a church. Amen? Please turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and uh, I want to just touch on one more aspect of this church that was just uh, being birthed by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Um, you, we've read this passage for uh, umpteen times, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So we've talked about um, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. I just want to talk about the next thing in verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders, wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. How about that? And many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And awe came upon everyone. Can this happen for us? Can this happen for us? I believe it can. I believe it's something we can look forward to and experience, every single one of us. Not just those of us who are apostles. But I believe that this is something that we can partake with with Christ in, you know? What say you? What say you we believe and ask the Lord this question? What does it take for us to experience this? What say you we even presume that God is doing this in our church, in our lives, so that if we follow Him, the next 40 days, we will see something extraordinary. Because I believe this is the ordinary life of the church and it's, and it's in its infancy. That signs and wonders can happen in our lives. We've been talking a little bit about um, a phrase called add one. And I wonder whether it's possible for us whether we've experienced this or not, that God could lead you and me to one person to pray for. That God could give us a sustained prayer intercession for that per person who may not know the Lord. And we, like those two blokes, could bring one person to the Lord. That person may be a Christian who is struggling or who has gone away from the Lord. Or it could be a non-Christian. What say you? It's possible that some of us have never experienced that, that, that experience before. But is it possible that if we take ourselves beyond our experience, that this perhaps hitherto un in unexperienced phenomenon can actually happen? Maybe in the 40 days, but maybe not but we can fix ourselves 
upon God's desire that none should perish. Yeah? This is not a challenge to, to all of us I'm, that we can fail or pass in or, or succeed in. No, this is just, a, just saying, why don't we take God seriously and see what happens? For some of us, it's, an, it's going to be an experiment. You are looking at me as scans and thinking, what is he talking about? No, it'll never happen. Well, for some of us, it thinks, yeah, let's try it. Or whatever it is, even if you want to do an experiment, sustain that experiment for 40 days, then after that you can forget about it. But maybe not. But perhaps God can cause us to add one person to our prayer list in such a way that we will see something special happen in that person's life. Could be somebody who's in really bad shape. Could be somebody who you love. He's a good friend. I remember when I was in college, there were certain people who had such good friends. I wish they would become Christians. And I started praying for them. By the end I was, of, of my college days, days uh, almost all of them had become Christians. You would never have guessed that they would become Christians. I remember the last year that I was in, in college, this whole bunch of people who were completely, completely non-Christians brought sacks and sacks of library books that they had stolen and brought them to the librarian and says, sorry, we stole these books. We're now returning, to, we're Christians now. That may not or may happen in your life. But I'm just thinking, maybe God can do something in one person. Amen? Now, I believe that um, the Lord has given me a series to share with you that will help us to see God use us in signs and wonders in that way. And so today, I'd like to begin with, with that. Let us pray again. Lord, we recognize that we can talk and talk for till the cows come home from this pulpit and nothing happens. It may sound all beautiful and all that, but Lord, we are not really going for that. We are asking for you to do the things that you are well able to do in us that will make us able to see you Use us with signs and wonders. We believe that you have given us your spirit without measure. So we ask you that in these next few weeks, you will speak to us and show us what prevents us from having that and also give us the pathway to freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you can turn with me to First uh, Corinthians chapter ten, First Corinthians chapter ten, we will read verse um, fourteen. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge not for yourself what I judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake, all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participation participants with demons you cannot drink the cup of the lord and the cup of demons you cannot partake of the table of the lord and the table of demons shall we provoke the lord to jealousy are we stronger than he all things are lawful but not all things are helpful all things are lawful but not all things build up let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor all right we'll stop here for a little bit the thing about idols is uh, central here, and the the thing that Paul is saying is this: when we take the blood and the body of Christ in these elements in this communion, we are participating in the blood of Christ. We are participating participating in the life of Christ. The life is in the blood. You know, we see it here that in the Old Testament, see that in the Le Levitical law, life is in the blood. When we are partaking of the cup and the, and the bread, we are, at, we are actually participating. That means having a share in or entering into the dynamic, the reality of Christ's life. That's why I believe we can do signs and wonders. That's why Jesus says, if you believe in me, the things that I do, you will do an even greater thing. It is not on the basis of the fact that we are apostles or that we are gifted, or we are special, or we have that special gene that makes us have faith. It's not on that basis at all. It is on the basis that when we become Christians, we die. Everything in us that's in our flesh that is powerless is pushed aside. It doesn't have to reign over us, and we have a new life that we participate in. So when we participate in the communion, we are participating in the fact that Jesus has power and that power has been given to us that we are to actually actively participate in. Yeah? That's so exciting, right? When we partic partic participate in the body, the, the, the bread, we are participating not just as individuals doing our own special thing in our lands, but we are participating together in the body of Christ. So we eat from one bread, so to speak, that makes us one. Now, there is a reality behind all this. And the reality is bigger, more real than this. And that is that Christ is fashioning us together as a body, as a household, right? And he's, he's mystically and supernaturally joining us together in that way. How that happens, I have no idea. But supernatural things will happen in us, right? We are participating in something that is far more profound than what we see out here with the plastic and the, you know, the, the cover that's so difficult to pull, pull over. Yesterday, I, last week, I, I didn't realize that when I was pulling off the still some of that sticky stuff, and it all fell down. I, <laughs> behind all that, okay, there is a reality that we can participate in. Okay, this reality is powerful and it makes 
many of us able to do signs and wonders and miracles. Amen? So I am believing that what we saw, the devotion to the apostles' doctrine and all that kind of stuff, the, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, to prayers, all that, has a, has, a, has a consequence. It causes us to also experience the awesome presence and power of God in our lives. Okay. When I first heard about that, I think I was maybe like 21 years old or 22 years old. I was hooked. Because it meant that I could be used by God in supernatural ways as well, as a lifestyle. And I saw that happening in my life right up to today. So can you. My time here in America is absolutely meaningless if that isn't the case. I believe this is absolutely true. And I believe in these 40 days, God can do something significant in our lives because of the fact that he already has given us the Holy Spirit without measure. Amen? So there's a way in which Paul is saying here, you cannot participate in the, in the altar and take the blood of Christ and at the same time have idols. Yeah? Because if you have idols, you will participate in that also. You will participate in that other demonic realm. <laughs> I come from Malaysia. 1988, I started coming to Fuller during the summers. And uh, I felt that I should get educated. And the Lord led me to Fuller. And my first class at Fuller was in what was used to be called the School of World Missions. Now it's called Inter School of Intercultural Studies. The distinct thing about those days was that Fuller was a uh, that, that school, the School of World Missions, had a very uh, high, uh, large contingent of students who came in who were what you call mid-career missionaries. And then there were also the ones who were uh, people from overseas, people like us who could just barely afford to come and study. So we were considered like mid-career missionaries who were coming to Fuller to study about all the stuff that had to do with missiology, yeah? Okay. And uh, I was, the first class I attended was a class on Paul's missionary methods and, and, uh, and, and strategies, something like that. And the professor was doing a theology of Paul, Paul's mission. And we came to this uh, issue of idolatry. And the question was, can we f eat food often to idols? And all the Americans said, of course we can. Because idols are nothing. And all of those who are from us who are overseas said, of course you can't. 
And the professor, who had been a missionary in Nigeria, was saying, I think we can because Paul speaks about the freedom. And all of us who were from overseas had a resounding, no! So what do you think? <laughs> who was right? The foreigners or the, or the Americans? I'm, I'm, I'm making it very crassly simplistic, okay? It was, it was a lot more complex than that. But just for our own cartoon uh, purposes. What we see here in Paul is, is an argument. He says, so are these idols anything? Then he says, but I don't want you to participate with demons. Okay? So these idols, they're made of wood, they're made of gold, they're made of jewels and all that. Can they do anything? No, they can't. But Paul is saying, I don't want you to participate with demons. Because behind these things, which are nothing, there are demonic spirits, right? Idolatry is not just an issue of wood and metal and jewels and things that man made. Idols are more than that. It is true, these idols can't do anything. Yeah? They are nothing. But when you worship these idols or you eat food offered to idols, you actually are submitting yourself to spirits behind that. And that's why Paul says, when you, when you go and, and to your friend's house, you, don't, you just don't have to worry about whether these things are harmful for you. But if you know that there's, these are food that are offered to idols, don't eat it. Not just for your own conscience, because this food is not more powerful than God, right? God made all these things. But you need to know for the sake of the conscience of the person who has invited you, who is serving you with this food, that this food is offered to demons or offered to other gods. And all the foreign students understood this so well. Of course. Don't you get it? Yeah. And I realized that my class that I had gone to was filled with some people who had no idea of the spiritual realm that was involved in, the, in all these things. Right? So, there is a way in which idolatry is more complex and has more to it than just the fact that they are represented by items of wood and stone and all that. In fact, that stuff is nothing. It's true, there's nothing. They can't do anything to you. Neither can food do anything to you. But when you enter in or participate in that religious stuff, you are actually participating in demonic spirits. Okay? And that is why a lot of times when American missionaries would come or, or Western missionaries would come to Malaysia or Singapore or different place, they would have a very hard time because they don't know how to work in the spiritual realm. They're just thinking they're, they're going to bring their Western freedom in and just eat whatever they want to do because it's, what is it? It's nothing. And not realizing they're getting oppressed left, right, and center. Yeah. 
I remember uh, bringing a team of uh, Americans to my church, and uh, they were really excited when they first came. But very soon after they arrived, they got into serious depression because they didn't understand what was going on in the spiritual realm. Yeah? And so they got, got a lot of spiritual attack. For those of us who come from, from countries that are not um, so-called Christian countries, one of the hardest things for those, of, those who, are, who are Buddhists and Hindus, for us in, in the church, is when, they, when these Buddhists and Hindu converts become Christians, that one of the hardest things that we really start praying for very, very early is when they would go back home for Chinese New Year or Taipusam or Diwali, whatever. Because these new Christians will have to face their family. And their family would, during these times, offer food to idols, to their ancestral gods, or Kaowongye, or Kuan Kung, or Kuan Yin, or these kinds of gods. And what they would do is that they would offer the food to these gods, and then after that, they would eat together as a family meal. So many of these Christians would go back and they would start, in, start entering back into the life of the family. If the family is not Christian, what happens is that they experience a tremendous conflict at home. Because for many Buddhists or many Taoists, um, or many of those who worship spirits, right, spirits, particular gods, these, these gods unite the family together. Their family identity is caught up in the worship of these gods. And so when they eat together, they eat, they eat uh, this food that's offered to idols. And for us as pastors, as, as cell group leaders and all that, we work, we, we pray so hard for them and try to prepare them. And they would often go back home in Chinese New Year to their own hometowns and all that. And we would be praying like crazy for them because they have to face that great test. Because their family can be really hurt when they are, they've decided that they're not going to eat the food offered to idols. Because they understand that. And then after, uh, and speaking for those who are the, who are the, the Chinese, when they come back after Chinese New Year, you can see some of them have a tremendous victory. Some of them are shell-shocked by the conflict they've had. Some of them are actually oppressed because they ate the food often to, often to idols. And so you have to pray for them until the oppression goes away. Yeah? So I feel that this is an important thing for us to understand because idols are not neutral. They have power. Yeah, they have power. I would like to go into that because these idols are things that we have to deal with in order for us to experience the power of God in our life. Yeah? If you turn with me to Psalm 135, we shall look at that. You probably can guess that today our topic is idolatry. Psalm 135. And we'll read this from verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, 
the work of human hands. Yeah, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Yeah. So this is a really interesting passage because what it tells us is that there is a connection between the nature of those idols and, the, and what becomes of those who worship them. Okay, let's look at this. The word idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Now, someone with a kind of a Western mindset, and I hate to call it that, but a, a certain mindset that is, that is devoid of any understanding of spiritual things, will read it this way. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. They are the work of human hands. There's nothing more to them than that. Right? There's nothing more to them than just silver and gold. They're work of human hands. That means they are inert. We know that. Human ma- beings make these things and they, are, they don't give life. They have no life in themselves, right? They have eyes that do not see. They have ears that do not hear. And there is neither breath in their mouths. Okay, we understand that. Of course, it's logical, right? This is, we're not stupid. This is true. The obvious thing is that these things are non-entities. Does that make sense? They have no life in them. But look at the next verse. It says, verse 18, those who make them become like them. Become like them. So do all who trust in them. The Assamis is not saying belief in idols is just kind of um, ign- uh, an issue of primitive ignorance or animistic kind of, of, of um, um, uh, lack of knowledge or lack of technology or lack of science. He's not saying that. He's saying that those who worship those things will become like that. What is it? Become like what? Eyeless. Blind. They'll become blind. They'll become deaf. Their words will have no power. They don't have breath. If you worship these things, if you give yourself to these things, you trust in these things, you will become spiritually blind. Spiritually deaf. Your words will have no anointing. When you try to add one, nobody will listen to you because your words have no life in them. If you give them yourself to them, they will take over your eyes. It's not saying, <laughs> these things are silver and gold. What is that? Nothing. No. What he's saying is much more sinister than that. He's saying these things are active. Not the, not, the, not the silver and gold. It's the spirits behind them. If you, if, you, if, you, if you worship these things, they will take over your eyes so that you may be very intelligent, very perceptive, but your perception is not from God. You can't tell the difference between what you're seeing in your own physical eyes 
and what you are seeing with in the spirit. It is much more active. It's much more sinister than, than what we kind of... <laughs> right? It's saying that your words will have no breath. Your mouth will have no breath in it. That means you don't have the life of God. You have something, but it's earthbound, it's limited, it's part of, it's basically you will just remain in the flesh or you will remain in demonic confusion. What he's saying is this, if you worship idols, you, you participate in this stuff, you will be powerless spiritually. And so that is why I feel that today we have to talk about idolatry because of the fact that idolatry is more than just the physical, obvious, and superficial manifestations. It goes deeper. It makes me think about something, you know. And it has the, something that has the nature of viruses. It reminds me of viruses. Now, according to certain experts in my house, I'm told that viruses have no life in themselves. They can't reproduce themselves. They have no life. They are not life. Most viruses, though, when they come into you, they will inject their genetic material into your cell. Wasn't that smart of me? They will inject their genetic material into your cell and use your own cell machinery to replicate itself. Okay? So that it will leave behind a ghost cell in the end. The whole idea is that there seems to be some link, at least metaphorically, between viruses and idols. Not the physical idols, but the spirits behind. The nature of these spirits is that if you give yourself to them, they come into your cell, they will gut you, they'll gut you, they'll empty you out, empty out of your life, take your life and reproduce itself, leaving you a, almost like a ghost cell. I think idolatry is that way. What idolatry does may not be necessarily seen on the surface, but when you try to do move in the things of God, right, the things of the supernatural realm, you find that you have, it doesn't work. You can say all the best, most poetic and most profound philosophical things and all that, and there's actually no life in them. But hey, you keep on reproducing dead stuff. And that's why I believe that God has something for us during this period of Lent because of the fact that He wants to set us free. Idols are characterized by this. They have power. Most of the time, we, 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 we worship idols because of fears that we have. We worship idols to get away from shame, for example. So we worship the idol of materialism, success. We worship the, the idol of popularity so that we can get away from the shame of not being popular, not being successful, not being seen badly by others. Yeah? We think of idolatry not just in terms of wood or, or, or silver and gold, but we think in terms of spirits that actually are 
have a viral nature that want to consume us, to cause us to participate in them. And the thing about idols is that we usually worship these things. We pursue means, humanly made means, of escaping shame or escaping boredom or escaping failure or escaping poverty or escaping marginalization or escaping loneliness or we're escaping uh, not having someone to be intimate with. We use idols and they will take the form of those people, means, media things, contemporary inventions to actually escape a very deep fear that we have. Some idols are the very fear, the thing that we fear itself. That's why some people groups, they actually worship demons who are who they fear. Because by when they do that, they are saying, we have no, no defense against you. We just hope you just leave us alone. So a lot of times for the, for the Chinese, what we do is that we, 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 we offer um, um, food and, and, and gold to these gods because we are afraid of them, not because we love them or that we adore them that we, or we think that they will do something for us, but because we are just afraid. That just, that's a direct fear. But for other kinds of idolatries, it is things that we think, Egypt or cars or success or, um, or, or, uh, or the symbols of success or clothing or, or, or good looks or, or people or friends or church or whatever it is, so that we will escape those things. Yeah? I believe that one of the things that we are afraid of is not having a life that is fulfilled. And I think one of, the, one of the idols that we have is the goal of a fulfilled aspiration. We will do all kinds of things for that. When these things become the goals, what happens is that we begin to allow these to enter into our so-called selves and then release their own power upon us and cause us to be possessed by those spiritual powers. You may not become possessed, but the idols have this unique ability to grab hold of you so much so that you are not holding on to them, they are holding on to you. And that's why if you are into drugs, you can't get rid of it. You can't say, I'm wanting to get out of it. If you are bound by those symbols of things that you use to overcome shame, whether it's materialism or it's people or only hearing a certain kind of narrative about you, you will actually not be able to let go of it. It will hold on to you. Idols have that power. These spirits have that power over us. They make us, in our insecurity, more insecure because we have depended upon them to hold us up. Does that make sense? So I want to put it to you that in this period of 40 days, the Lord will actually be very gracious to us because He will come nearby and He'll say, okay, you don't have to depend upon this. You don't have to depend upon shame. You don't have to depend upon this powerless thing. It will make you powerless. 
these idols, these idols that, that, that in the scriptures say they are nothing, they can't do anything and all that, they will make you that way. The spirits are powerful, but they will make you like the idol. The spirit retains the power, it takes your life, but it makes you like the idol, like the wood. You know? And so what I want to put it, what I want to just look, look at with you is just this whole phenomenon in which we can actually end up um, gutted of the power of God. Yeah? Gutted out of the power of God. And so before we move any further, I want to just bow our heads with in a moment of prayer and we ask God to begin to bring to the surface anything that we may have given ourselves to as a means of assuaging fears as a means of self-fulfilling, of achieving our own aspirations, our own dreams. Our own dreams can become our idols too. Usually, you can tell the presence of an idol, a spiritual idol, by places of anxiety that we have. You can be afraid for someone and be anxious for that person. And sometimes there can be an idol there because somehow that person reflects on your own self-image. Idols have a, they have power. They also have the similitude of blessed things. We real, realizing our full potential is a blessed thing. What an idol does is that it makes us put that as a creation of our own self. And we put that before God. Idols are often just about ourselves. For us, by us. And they hook also into our sin, our self. And God says, don't partake, partake of these. Partake of the life of Jesus. Be possessed by him. Lord, we just welcome you to just reveal and set us free from people, things and practices, usage of time, things that occupy our, our, our brain space, 
things that make us procrastinate, things that we go to for the comfortability, the comfort of it, rather than facing life as you would have us. Come Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Come to you and we ask you to set us free from the power of things, from the power of the enemy that can use things that are benign often to subvert us, to take our eyes away from you to themselves. There's a sense that there is uh, among us an anxiety that comes from the fear of shame. The enemy has imprinted upon our souls a sense of shame, regret from things in the past, traumas perhaps, failures, certain things about the way we are, just intrinsically, even things about our what we were born with. And the Lord is here to set us free from that. Not by idols, but not by keeping up with the Joneses. but telling us, you died with me. Give it up. Hallelujah. Praise your name, Lord. Glory to your name. There's anxiety and there's shame. Some of us, and the Lord is here, set you free. that there are some that um, we've been given idols by our family and we didn't even know it because it was what it meant to be a good boy or a good girl. And the Lord is just opening our eyes right now to say, you are good in me and I release you right now from any other hold on your path in Jesus' name what you're going to build in Jesus' name and who you become in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah, uh, Psalm 135 says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. And here's the part. For the Lord has chosen you, chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. Or another translation, Israel has peculiar treasure. And the Lord says, I want to own you now. I don't want you to be possessed by demons or by idols. I want to possess you. You see, you can't get rid of shame just because the Bible says you're not condemned. You have to experience it by making yourself his possession. What an amazing thing. God says, no, you don't own yourself. 
you don't, don't just believe the Bible, but you believe it in such a way that you say, I believe it enough to say, God, you own me now. I want to be your possession. And I want to be able to do anything you tell me to do, even if it means a hit on my own self-esteem, on what, what people think of me. I'm your possession. Praise your name, Lord. The Holy Spirit is here. In some ways, we don't need any more words to be spoken from here. Because the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Lord, we thank you right now. You're healing us from prayerlessness, from being in touch with you. When we lay on our beds at night, you're healing us right now from having to have all the worries of the world, but to turn our eyes to you because you want to be so close to us. So we receive that deliverance right now in Jesus' name of worrying on our beds right now. Receive right now closeness to you, Lord, right there. Someone's concerned about your marriage and you're worried that things will fall apart. You're also worried about what people think of you. And the Lord says, be my possession. Let me possess you. Let me do in you and direct you the way I want you to go. So that you will no longer go in protection of your own reputation or your own self. But as I am directing you. there's someone that it's like the enemy has just laid this huge weight on you and you were breathless because this weight is on you you didn't do it you didn't choose it it's just on you and the lord's lifting it up right now in jesus name he's taking his crane he's just lifting it off that huge elephant is lifted off of you right now in jesus name you're set free to breathe to breathe for him to run for him You are my precious possession. You are my special treasure, the Lord would say. Lord, we want to be possessed by you. So that even as you possess us, you can take our eyes, our lips, our ears, and our breath and use it for your glory. We give our lives to you right now. In the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 God bless.